2: It's been over 50 years since a young Staten Island advanced journalist unmasked the horrid conditions at the Willowbrook State School, prompting a national outcry and major shift in the country's treatment of the developmentally disabled.
1: I could not believe the, the conditions they described. It was horrifying, they told me, my trusted friends. And it was terrible and needed remediation. Of course, I had no idea, even with their harsh assessment, how horrible it really would be.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was just clearly a very meaningful ceremony, and it kind of, in my own naivete about the situation, exposed me to just how life-altering and earth-shattering a lot of this stuff was.
2: Welcome to the Staten Island Advances from the scene a podcast bringing you an inside look at the biggest stories on Staten Island with the reporters who cover them. I'm your host, Eric Bascom, and this week I'm joined by Staten Island Advance public interest and advocacy reporter, Paul Liotta, to discuss the 35-year anniversary of the closing of the Willowbrook State School and the role the advances reporting played in the years-long process. Thanks for joining me today, Paul. Before we dig into this, uh, how about those Mets? I mean, we've only got a week left in the season. How are we feeling? Yeah, I mean, we are both Mets
0: fans, unfortunately. It's a <laughs> curse upon us. But, uh, yeah, this uh, series coming up against Atlanta, I think, is going to make or break us in terms of clinching the division, but... We shall see. We're in the playoffs, so yeah, better than
2: last year. Absolutely, and I think for this Mets team, a lot of people will be happy with just getting to the playoffs because when you've got Scherzer and DeGrom at the top of that rotation, although Jake hasn't exactly looked himself, you have a shot in any series, really, with those guys starting. So feeling good about it, hoping we can uh, wrap up the division in Atlanta, and hopefully the weather will uh, will agree and let that happen because we don't know with that hurricane coming up. That's out there. true. Fingers crossed. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, as I mentioned in the Open, this year marked the third. 35th anniversary of the closing of the Willowbrook State School. So to get us started, can you just give our listeners kind of an overview of of what the Willowbrook State School was and and when it operated on Staten Island? So planning and construction of the school
0: is... Late 30s, early 40s, it's intended to be a school for, you know, severely special needs kids. Obviously, late 30s, early 40s, there's something else going on with World War Two, and it uh, becomes the site of, I think, the largest military hospital on Earth, is something I read. Wow. Uh, it was called Halloran, it was with the VA, it was Halloran Military Hospital. So, essentially, that is there until the end of the war. So, the original contract was end of the war plus six months. That went much longer than that. Yeah, but there's a lot of debate between the state, uh, the federal government, about like what's going to be there. But by June 49, Willowbrook State School is up and running more or less. In that time, in the early days, it becomes clear pretty quickly that it is a, you know, sort of challenging situation to deal with. The kids are, you know, severely mentally handicapped in one way or another. There is a pretty Broad spectrum of kids. I think one of the directors of the school talked about they had like a a marching band. Mm -hmm. They had uh, sports that they could play. So I think the best way to understand it is a sport is a boarding school for kids with special needs, Mm -hmm. but a wide spectrum of kids with special needs. And it existed up until 1975. uh, And it's really a focal point of the community. At one point, it is the largest employer on Staten Island, uh, you know, a lot of our reporting, like a lot of it is like Christmas parties that they were having at the facility, you know, Santa coming by to drop off gifts. But even, you know, with all the warmer stuff, there is obviously like a seedier underbelly to everything that's going on there. I mean, there's, you know, multiple reports of deaths, there's kids running away, there's kidnapping incidents, there's staff members beating kids. And you can tell that it's something that is a super complicated, messy, hard to deal with situation, and that it is not always coming out in the most rosy way, if that makes sense. In 1965, there are a series of deaths that opens up a grand jury investigation. Senator Robert Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, RFK, visits the school and just tears into it. He says the kids like the kids living in a zoo. I think I've seen quotes a den of vipers, a den of snakes, something like that. But he just tears into it. So the governor at the time was Nelson Rockefeller. Nelson Rockefeller is, I think, for a lot of people, involved with Willowbrook, a, a villain of the story, mm-hmm. because he's associated with, you know, cutting funds. He becomes governor in '59. He leaves in early '70s. So he has been sort of villainized by the people most familiar with the school uh, that he cut funding. That so the school becomes overcrowded, understaffed. And over the decades, it just sort of deteriorates. I I think our most famous reporting starts in the early 70s, uh, sort of exposing that, you know, these are kids living in sort of squalid, like filthy, terrible, awful conditions. And uh, by 75, Governor U. Carey uh, signs on to a consent decree that required the school to be reduced from... uh, population a little over 6,000 to about 250 by 1981. So that's six years that you're gonna have to figure out what to do with all these kids, which is a very tall order. Yeah, absolutely. So by 81, they meet the requirements of the decree, but Governor Mario Cuomo, he closes the school, 35th anniversary, eventually, most of the campus is turned over to the CUNY system. It becomes a college of
2: Staten Island uh, that we know today yeah, I mean, I think that's sort of a brief history of the school. Right, and so now that we've kind of got that baseline of what what was going on here, let's move on to some of those conditions that you mentioned um, that were reported on by uh, Staten Island Advanced reporter Jane Curtin. Um, So first, I'm curious kind of what what prompted her to to look into this. Obviously, it had been somewhat of an issue for a while, but wasn't necessarily brought into the spotlight as much as, uh, you know, this kind of prompted it and and gave it a second wind, almost, the, the story. So Uh, What kind of led her to this story, and then what were some of the conditions that she witnessed during her time? So, I mean, I've
0: never met Jane personally, but uh, we did an interview with her. And, I mean, like I said, this was something that I think people who were not necessarily desensitized to it noticed as something that was terrible for a lot of people. I think they just became, this is the way things are. This is how it has to be. And even in her recent interview with us, uh, Jane sort of just credits her naivete uh, she, she was in her 20s when she was writing this and uh, she's just saying that you know if I had known that this is how things were at the time I might not have been so like shocked and saddened by what I saw June 49 the school is up and running and I think our first like inside Willowbrook story is done yeah. like it's Um, by a guy named Edwin Endress so but he has this quote in it that like really stuck out to me it's for these kids life is misshapen a labyrinth with no way out here are the retarded the backward the wayward happy minds of those who will never think and it just kind of speaks to I think this idea that this is how it has to be um And Jane didn't think that. Jane went in and, you know, saw it for what it was, what people came to understand it to me, that it was a place that was mistreating, you know, some of the most vulnerable among us.
2: Yeah, and I know that she was joined by uh, a photographer during her time uh, visiting the school, and that they had kind of been able to witness and capture some of these conditions that these children were living in. Can you talk a little bit about some of that? She went in with a photographer named Eric Ayers, and I mean, when
0: you look at the photos, you can—it's really what she describes in her writing. It's you know, these kids who are on their own. They often don't have toys. They are just sort of there and it's not that I mean I, I think neglect it's not necessarily that they're being abused but that they're being neglected and that people are not engaged with them in the way that might help them live the best possible lives they can and uh, you know thrive even despite their you know unfortunate circumstances but Eric's photos I think really captured that very well and uh, you know displayed what was going on because I think when people are thinking about this stuff, words isn't always the total. I think you mm-hmm. need those photos, you need those visual aids. And I mean, it is that stuff that Bobby Kennedy was describing. It was, you know, Bobby Kennedy and Nelson Rockefeller getting into sort of a political squabble. But I mean, I think it, history, looking back, I think Bobby Kennedy was obviously in the right when he was speaking. And, you know, change sort of was the catalyst to getting it exposed.
2: We'll be right back. The Mayor of Maple Avenue is a powerful multi-part podcast about Sean Sinisi, a victim of former Penn State football coach Terry Sandusky, who was arrested 10 years ago for numerous child sexual abuse charges. The podcast series is written and hosted by Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Sarah Gannam, who takes listeners into the world of addiction rehabilitation, where society can be quick to celebrate the consequences for abusers while not addressing the needs of their victims. Subscribe now to The Mayor of Maple Avenue wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, and, you know, as we both know all too well, sometimes local stories like this don't necessarily get the attention that they deserve unless they're being picked up by national television outlets, which is exactly kind of what happened here. And so can you tell us a little bit about uh, how this became a national story and, and kind of the impact of the news reaching a broader audience? Rather Rivera was a Channel 7 reporter at the time for ABC.
0: So
1: when the doctors told me, 50 years ago, to tell me of uh, this expose that needed airing on television, Jane Curtin's fine work at the Advance, to advance that story and get the story out. I could not believe the the conditions they described. It was horrifying, they told me, my trusted friends, and it was terrible and needed remediation. Of course, I had no idea, even with their harsh assessment, how horrible it really would be. Of course, I had no idea that 50 years later, 35 years after the closing of this terrible institution, we would be gathered here celebrating the progress, guarding against deterioration and budget cuts and so forth. But the world has changed for the developmentally disabled. They have come out of the shadow.
0: Some of the conversations I've heard him have about it seem a little bit more dramatic than I'm familiar with in reporting, particularly since we know Jane just sort of walked in. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that was a whole other thing about Willowbrook is that it was, it was very much a part of like the Staten Island community. It was wide open. Like, they weren't trying to hide anything. I mean, they had open houses, I think, once a month. It was you know, something people could visit and see what was going on, but it, everyone was just so extremely desensitized to it that I don't think it stuck out. But Geraldo, um, to his credit, he brought in a TV crew, and I think TV news is, unfortunately, for our side of the profession, much easier to consume than print or even photo, and it's easier to understand when you're, you know, exposed to these visuals of these kids sort of living in these awful, squalid conditions. Uh, Seventy-two is when his documentary, you know, news reporting comes out, and uh, I think that really brings it to the national spotlight.
2: I can say from my own experience that I know it can be kind of frustrating when when people, the general public, doesn't seem to really care too much about a story until it's it's kind of picked up by a bigger media outlet so I'm I'm curious in the years since uh, has Curtin kind of said anything to indicate that she felt snubbed by Rivera kind of getting so much of the attention for a story that she really kind of initially highlighted Uh, I don't want to speak to Jane to that extent but from what I've seen in uh,
0: the interviews um, she is someone who feels I mean she's extremely humble about the work she did in her reporting. It's, to her again, it's just something like, I. they brought me in and they showed me what was going on and I wrote about it. And it was something that, you know, she was shocked to that I think the average person dealing with that at the time just wasn't, they were, like I said, just so extremely desensitized to what was going on that in a lot of ways she, uh, she doesn't, at least in the interview with her I read, uh, she does not, take a ton of credit for, you know, the amazing work that she did. And it is, I mean, anybody in our business who's thinking about, you know, feature writing, go read that stuff because it's descriptive. It like brings you into the location and it's just, it's fantastic writing. But uh, she is, like I said, in the interviews I've read with her, she is extremely humble. And I don't think someone who would necessarily feel, uh, snubbed
2: that Geraldo is more, nationally associated with the story. She might be a, a better reporter than I because I know that I get frustrated when I do a story and then a week later it's on New York One and now people seem to care about it. And I'm like, I've already t- told you guys about that, but I guess no one clicked on it. Um, so uh, good for her because I, I would be a little, uh, I, I'd be a little salty about that to be for quite sure, honest. For sure. Um, so, so one thing that I've heard kind of in the discussions about the Willowbrook State School is how kind of the exposure of these horrific conditions have kind of changed the way that the developmentally disabled are housed and cared for all across the country so can you tell us a little bit about the ripple effects and the broader reaching impacts of this so in the
0: 70s there is a there's a general push to deinstitutionalize. i mean this is the closure of you know mental hospitals the closure of places like willowbrook um you know just a lot of more spread out services, I think is the way to describe it, because when you talk about Willowbrook, you're talking about an institution that served the entire state of New York. I mean, you have kids coming from Buffalo, from Manhattan, from Long Island, from all over the state to sort of get these services they need. But I mean, they're so far away from the people that love and care about them is it's another way that they can sort of fall through the cracks and wind up in these you know conditions that no one should be living in. And I think today it's much more spread out. I mean, you have individual schools for the developmentally disabled and you have, you know, I'd imagine each county in New York state has its own set of services (laughs) that it provides for people. And I think that that is where the shift has gone away from these massive giant, you know, 6,000 kid institutions to 6,000 person institutions, I should say, but to these more localized, community-based organizations, nonprofit organizations, uh, things like On Your Mark, A uh, Very Special Place, those sorts of institutions and you have on set out.
2: Yeah, and that, that makes a lot of sense. I actually had not even uh, realized that this was uh, somewhere sure. where people were coming from all throughout the state, right, from as far as Buffalo, as you said, and, you know, your family is six, seven hours away at any given time, um, and it can be difficult because specifically in these circumstances with these children who are developmental mentally disabled uh, they can't really advocate for themselves in the same way that other people can so if they're being housed in these types of conditions and their family is not around to to see what's really going on there and to speak on their behalf it can be it can be difficult so i think that uh it's a great point the spreading out of this and keeping it, it, it as opposed to having one institution where you have all of these people kind of wrangled up for lack of a better term and just housing them there to have those types of services available at a more local level and closer to home is is obviously been a, a big step forward uh, for our for our treatment of these people so I'm curious. You know, you recently covered the ribbon cutting ceremony for the the Willowbrook Mile. It's called, which is located on the grounds of the former school, and it has these twelve milestones. When you're walking along the path, where you can kind of stop and read about, you know, the, the history of the site. and Can you give us uh, just a little more info on on how this project came together and and what it was like at the ceremony? <clears throat>
0: CSI takes over most of the campus. Of earlier administrations were obstinate, they were just against the idea of recognizing the history of their institution. But at any rate, eventually in uh, the mid-aughts, sort of mid-2000s, uh, the administrations get more on board uh, with the idea and this concept develops with the Wilbrook Mile. So essentially it's a, it's a walking path, like you said, with 12 milestones. And uh, Assemblyman Mike Husick gave a, uh, I think he allocated, I think it's about $150,000. It is just, you know, 12 milestones that, you know, anyone can walk, families can walk. And it was uh, being there, I mean, I guess in some way, my own naivete, because, I mean, all of Willowbrook, the story happens entirely before I think anybody in this room is born. Right. And I, so I'm not that familiar with it, and it's just that these people, it was just clearly such an impactful situation for them that they had this place to go where they could, you know, be reminded of their history and the effect that they had on, you know, the world and like the nation and how people with developmental disabilities are taken care of. And I mean, Geraldo was there, uh, Jane wasn't able to make it. But, you know, I mean, the advance, donated a a park bench that's going to be next to one, that is next to one of the sites. Yeah, I mean, it was just clearly a very meaningful ceremony and it kind of, in my own naivete about the situation, exposed me to just how life-altering and earth-shattering a lot of this stuff was.
2: Yeah, and I know that after the ceremony took place, you got the chance to speak with Diane Buglioli, a former employee at the school who helped to kind of expose some of those conditions that we've been talking about. So what did she tell you about her experiences working there? Diane was a uh, super young, I mean,
0: she was 19 when she's working there. She told me this story about how uh, she carries its key with her, and she's clearly a very meaningful memento.
2: When I started here in 1969, I opened doors, like I always carry this key with me these types of friends. I opened three doors, locked doors, and found behind
1: it 40 toddlers. I said to myself, why are 40 toddlers locked behind two doors? Today for me is opening those doors. And, and, because people have to learn about what happened so we can perceive differently in the future and guard the future so that we never
0: thought on the idea that these kids are, like, why are they like, locked away? Like, what is why are we doing this? That, you know, these children who are suffering and why, why are we making them suffer more like this? Like, why shouldn't they be outside? Why shouldn't they be interacting with people? Like, why shouldn't their lives try to be as best as we can make them? And I mean, She's clearly, I mean, that place I mentioned earlier, a very special place. Um, She's the founder, um, leader, and I mean, she has been a tireless, strong advocate for the developmentally disabled, and she is just a a fascinating person to speak with about this subject. It was was a very moving experience speaking with her. I've spoken with her at other events. But it's just always she's so well informed on the matter. I mean, she can speak about, you know, the modern challenges, because, again, this is no matter how you're doing it, whether it's institutions or these more localized modern settings, it's extremely difficult work.
2: And uh, she's really just a wealth of information. Yeah, and that actually kind of leads into the, the last thing I wanted to touch on before we wrap up, which is while, you know, we've discussed this and obviously our country has made some big strides in terms of our caring for the developmentally disabled over the years, there's obviously always more work to be done there. So kind of in your conversations with Diane and with other advocates, what are, what are some of the issues that they're still kind of struggling with and hoping to address? The comparison that is made now is the comparison of Nelson Rockefeller and
0: Andrew Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo has obviously had his own issues uh, leaving office. But something that kind of went under the radar is that funding for people with special needs, their services that they need, has dwindled. I think uh, Diane described it as crushed. I think that was the word she used over the past 10 years. So, I mean, for them, the fight continues, right? Like, it's how do we ensure that conditions don't deteriorate and these kids, we don't have to have another willow rope. And uh, another advocate who was at the event, uh, Laura Kennedy, she had said, um, again, it was more metaphorical speaking, but it was, uh, you know, we've come a thousand miles, but we have thousands more to go. Uh, And it's just sort of this idea that the fight goes on and they want to ensure that children, these people with developmental disabilities aren't, you know, thrown back into the shadows.
2: Yeah, and thankfully we have advocates like them out there to continue fighting for that. So thank you so much for joining me today, Paul. I really appreciate you coming back on, and uh, I look forward to speaking with you again soon. For sure, man. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Staten Island Advances from the scene. If you like what you've heard, please make sure to rate and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and visit silive.com for the latest on all these stories and more. Thank you for supporting local journalism.